Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. And welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, I have welcomed back my latest obsession, Sean Carroll, research professor of physics at Caltech. His uh, podcast, which is truly what my obsession is, not just you, but your podcast. Which Ooh, is Sean Carroll's Mindscape. I mean, you're okay, but the but the podcast is. I get my sons turned on to it. Can't get my wife gaffed on board, and uh, but I recommend it most, most, most highly. Forthcoming book. It's already out. Something deeply hidden. Yep. Quantum worlds: The emergence of space time, which we'll kind of talk about. Uh, Sean is a theoretical physicist specializing in quantum mechanics, gravity, and cosmology. And uh, thanks to you, I've learned a little more about quantum mechanics and sort of the general. Sweeping ideas. Um, how long have you been at Caltech now? Oh, this is my thirteenth year there. It's a long time. It's a long time. And how do you find Pasadena? Everything good? I love it. You know, I was just in Chicago for the last couple of days, and it was snowing. Yeah, <laughs> and coming back to Pasadena, Pasadena felt good. Good. So, all right. I am. Uh, we we did a little bit of a run through some of these topics last time. It was not cohesive. I mean, in terms of my questioning, it was not like a linear sort of a conversation. It was just sort of things that I, I'd caught listening to your podcast more than anything and having, you know, a collegiate education in physics and sort of kept an eye on this since then. A couple things I want to get at this time. Um, let me ask just one sort of, I guess it's a technical question. How much are we missing on these topics by not discussing the mathematics? Because some of this really is about math. Yeah. No, that's actually a great question. Um, and the answer is it depends on what we're talking about. So let me give you an example where you're missing a lot. Uh, uh, we talk about quantum mechanics. My book, Something Deeply Hidden, is mostly about a particular version of quantum mechanics called the many worlds interpretation. Yes. Where when you measure a quantum system, we know experimentally that you get certain definite outcomes, but you can't predict which one. So, so I want to talk about entanglement a lot. Yeah, we'll get so there. We'll get to that. Um, but so many worlds says that in fact all of the different experimental outcomes become real just in separate worlds. So the world duplicates. And he literally means copies. what he's saying. I really, he, I really he do means mean that. He means when you observe okay. an electron, two of you emerge. That's right. And I think like that fact can be understood without the math. But then people say, well, where does the energy come from? Isn't, are you doubling the energy of the universe when you create mm -hmm. a new one? And that, you know, if you know the math, the answer is crystal clear that no, you're not violating energy conservation. Well, but it's the, really hard to and, explain and so, so this without is, the math. There's energy conservation, which you can't violate. Yeah. One of the things I was ruminating about on this, we'll, we'll get a little deeper into the many worlds theory here, but that it's 10 to the 10 to the 23rd or something worlds, right? You're predicting. It's a bunch, yeah. Or, or more. A buttload is the technical yeah. term. And isn't there a, a – and this is where the math got into my thinking. Isn't there – because you also talked about how probability emerges from these things mm -hmm. too. Right. And all these things are phenomenon that converge on one. Isn't it possible that there's so many that they just converge? They don't go to infinity. They go to one. Sorry, what are the 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 worlds? <laughs> oh, the worlds. So it's really we're just an amalgamation now of all the worlds in in one. You know what? Um, literally this afternoon, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's a philosopher of physics, and he mentioned exactly that interpretation of isn't quantum it possible? Mechanics. Because because um, to me, probabilities converge on one. Yeah, many worlds converge on one. Maybe really, it's just one. You know, but we don't experience that, right? So I don't experience the, many worlds either. Well, we experience entanglement. That's right. That well, you you experience experimental outcomes. You know, you measure the spin or the location of a particle, the energy, whatever. You discover the Higgs boson. You do all these things involving quantum mechanics. In everyone's experience in the history of the world, you seem to see a definite outcome. There's the particle at at some location. You, yeah. And the fundamental equation of quantum mechanics, the Schrödinger equation says otherwise. It says that you should not see a particle in a definite location. And so many worlds is one way to come to grips with that. So you're welcome to invent spin-offs of many worlds or alternatives to it or different versions of it. 
But many worlds, even though it seems wild, is just taking the Schrodinger equation at face value, yeah. literally. Not, so, not causing any, any yeah, exceptions the, for it. You know, the textbook version of quantum mechanics says that the Schrodinger equation is usually correct, except when you look at a quantum system, then it's not correct. Right. So if you measure so it, you, you make everything you measure not right. It, the wave functions collapse, and yeah. there's no equation but, for that. But whatsoever. I'm wondering if that collapsing idea is really what happens to the many worlds. Well, that's not what the Schrodinger equation says. So you're proposing a different interpretation. So, of so heading heading towards the asymptote of one yeah. is not a collapsing. Well, the Schrodinger equation doesn't have collapses in it. There's yeah. The wave functions don't collapse; they just always spread out. Yeah. So the fact that they seem to collapse to us demands some better I- explanation. Everett, the Hugh Everett, the guy who invented many worlds, says it's because the world branched. Uh, Niels Bohr, who invented the Copenhagen interpretation, says it's because the wave function collapsed, and that's what we're trying to figure out: which one is right. And Niels Bohr was just a more um, enigmatic, uh, charismatic dude that got everyone persuaded to his team. It's a fascinating story, you know, like how the history of quantum mechanics came to be the twisted mess that it really is. But Niels Bohr, more than anyone else, is responsible for shepherding our current version of quantum mechanics, our current understanding of it. And yeah, he's the one who convinced the rest of the physics community that all was fine and you know, they didn't have to think too hard about what it means to look at something or measurement or measure it or observe it. Just use the Schrodinger equation. Just well, don't worry about it. Well, except when you measure it. Right. Right? And that's what people like Einstein just couldn't do. They're like, why is this equation true sometimes and not true other times? That's that's no good. Yeah, something's wrong. Uh, so now we're still stuck with this, you know, 80, 90 years later, trying to deal with the fallout. Like, what is the right version of quantum mechanics? We don't know. And this is the uh, this is the scandal. You're not allowed to talk about it. That's right. Um, certainly, especially in physics departments, where you would expect that this would be the highest priority on our list. If you take that seriously, you're, you're thought to not be a real physicist. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I always when, when I hear you say that, I always think maybe that's again the math piece because it's it's divorcing everything from the math and trying to trying to be rational. <laughs> well, I think that uh, this is part of the self justification on the part of physicists. They say. You know, that's a philosophical question. It's not right. a physics question. Like, but they what's really, really mean, going on? They really mean you can't formulate a, a no, formula. No, I think what they mean is that you can't see the differences. You can't test experimentally the different possibilities. You know, we have multiple really honestly different theories of physics, all of which look like quantum mechanics at the end of the day. But they seem to be different and some of them are experimentally distinguishable. But it's hard. And so if you can't do an experiment to tell which one is right, physicists get nervous. Right. But isn't the very papers that Einstein wrote evidence that physics physicists do their thing without experiments? You, yeah. Right? Sometimes, you know, physicists they, do like to think that their theory should make sense. Yeah. Right. And that's that sounds obvious, but the demand that everything makes sense that's too is high. really yeah. restrictive. Yeah. You know? And so right it, now. It makes we're sense stuck, to this evolutionary instrument that we have in our cranium. Well, we, I think it's not it's not really that, you know, that they're compatible with each other. So for example, we all know, all we physicists know, that there's this huge looming problem with gravity. Okay, Einstein did a really good job at inventing a good theory of gravity called general relativity. Gravity is a curvature of space-time. Einstein, and you have a very good <coughs> podcast on this topic. Yeah, where you go into great I talk about detail. Do you yeah. want to remember the title of it? Uh, well, I, so I have a solo. My, my podcast yeah, about many different one. things, but I did do a solo episode on how space time can emerge from quantum mechanics. Yeah. that's right. And, that's and, the and research gravity I'm can doing emerge too, right? Gra- well, yeah, yeah. space time. Once space time is curved, this is what Einstein says is gravity. Yeah. But the conventional way of doing things, gravity and quantum mechanics, are simply incompatible with each other. Um, and we all know that's a problem. And even though there's no experiment we can do that violates either quantum mechanics or general relativity, because they're both mutually incompatible, one of them is going to have to change. And is the reason you can't do experiment on gravity is the, the, the scale? It's just too weak of a force. You know, quantum mechanics shows up when you look at individual particles or very, very small subatomic systems. For gravity, the individual particles would be gravitons, but gravitons just move right through you, almost never interacting. It's very hard to make a graviton in the lab. So we we are put, making it particles like 
sort of like light. Yeah, we make particles all the time. We yeah. make uh, you know bosons and fermions and so forth. But gravitons are just very, very hard to make one by one. You can make them in big bunches, gravitational waves, which we discovered a few years ago. But that just is a big enough bunch that everything looks classical again. To isolate a single graviton is beyond our capabilities. So, you, there, so the idea would be if you could – Study it on the level of a particle, you'd learn something. Then you would you, see the quantum behavior up close and maybe that would give you a clue as to how to build a better theory. Or yeah. maybe not, but at least it would be a step. And, and why can't we make a graviton? They're just too hard to make. They're just too weakly interacting. You know, the way that I always put it is, you know, you can use your arm to lift a bottle of water off of the desk, right? Yeah. So what is your arm? It's a bunch of electrochemical reactions. It's basically electricity and magnetism. It work in your arm, and that is able to beat the combined gravitational field of all of the atoms in the Earth trying to hold the bottle down. Right, right. I mean, your puny little arm is able to beat the entire Earth, and why is that? It's because gravity is a really weak force. Where would you? How would you make a graviton? Well, you could do it the same way you make a photon, right? You make a photon by taking an electron, which moving is a charged it. particle, and moving it, yeah. right? And so the electron has an electric field stretching in all directions. So when you move the electron, the electric field shifts. If you move the electron up and down repeatedly, the electric field around it waves, and we see that as light and therefore photons if we detect it one by one. Exactly the same thing is true for gravity. The electron has a gravitational field. If you move the electron, the gravitational field shifts, et cetera. But the number of gravitons you're producing that way is way, way smaller than the number of photons. Couldn't you're you move a bigger particle? Yeah, like the sun. <laughs> well, but I mean, <laughs> or a black hole. Yeah, right. That's the that's the problem. It's a very weak force. If you move a single electron, good luck with that. You're never going to make a detectable graviton. Huh. It, it begs the issue why you can't take a large object and move it though and something emerges. Well, but that's exactly it, how we do detect gravitational waves and yeah. why the Nobel Prize was won a year ago by the LIGO Observatory because what you needed to do was to have two black holes. Each one of them were 30 times the mass of the sun <laughs> spinning around each other really rapidly back and forth. That's the equivalent of shaking an electron. That we could see. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> So let's go to let's talk about entanglement because yeah. that's the most one of the more fascinating qualities about about the world we live in. Right. Uh, what should we call it? Reality? Yeah. What do we call it? Reality is good. The, the, the world. The emergent the properties of the universe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you had said something uh, that that essentially we're all just part of a wave function. Right. And that you and I are really just emergent properties of the wave function. Yep. That is what I think. That makes perfect sense to me. Good. Uh, and it also makes perfect sense to me if we're if we, everything's part of the same wave function, then entanglement sort of falls out of that. Yeah, good. Because distance is also irrelevant, good. right? Well, that's the idea right. So of we, at a distance, like, who yeah. cares? It's so just why don't we tell the people in the, yeah, go in the podcast land yeah. who have not read the book? Okay. Um, this is a big difference between classical mechanics that preceded quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics. And classical so, so mechanics, let's help like Newtonian, you know, yeah, exactly. F equals MA, classical velocity and whatever. All that seventeenth century. Yeah. You know, if you know the velocity and position of something, you can track what's going to happen. Mm. Force is mass times acceleration, just like you said, action and reaction. So that's the classical world. It was a clockwork universe. You could predict what would happen next. The big change in quantum mechanics is that in classical mechanics, every little bit of the universe, in principle, you could describe separately. When you want to know what's going on in the solar system, tell me what the sun is doing, tell me what the earth is doing, the moon, Jupiter, Mars, etc. It was a Planck that said if you had every position of everything, you could predict the future. Laplace. Laplace. That was Laplace, yes. Laplace's demon yes. was a thought experiment. But in quantum mechanics, uh, there's not – so for one thing, for one electron, let's say, there's a wave function and the wave function is sort of spread out all over the place and it tells you the probability that you'll see something if you were to measure it. And, and so you know, chemistry is deeply engaged in a lot of this. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's really, I mean, chemistry it's what, is very quantum. Yeah. I mean I did a lot of chemistry in college and it was a lot about electron clouds and yep. moving energies and thermodynamics were a huge part of because I did a lot about, about – yeah, biochemistry, and I had I developed kind of a sense of that. Mm -hmm. But you can do all that without quantum mechanics. Well, you can. You have to understand it, but you have to. You can, that's right. Quantum mechanics to, is why it all works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you can yeah. forget the quantum mechanics yeah. and get on with your life. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, you know why the chair I'm sitting on is solid is ultimately because of quantum mechanics. But I don't need to know quantum mechanics to know the chair is solid. Yeah. Right. Okay. But the entanglement is the fact that. 
there's a, a, a wave function for the electron. But if you have two electrons, there are not two wave functions. Anywhere in the universe. For the whole universe, there's one wave function for everything at once. Yeah. So if you have two, one electron here and one in the – name the farthest right. <laughs> star. Uh, Andromeda galaxy. Yeah, Andromeda yeah. galaxy. Those electrons will be related when you they me- can be when you measure them. I thought they necessarily were. They're not necessarily. They what? can be. Yeah. No, you can be entangled or not. You know, entanglement. Really, means, I thought entanglement was in everything. Entanglement means when you observe a, a property of one particle, let's say, that tells you something about the probabilities of getting measurement outcomes for another particle. That's when they're entangled. But you know, you and I are not really entangled. Like you don't need. Like if you measured me, that wouldn't tell you anything about you. But that's because we're looking at emergent properties. We're not looking at quantum properties. It's partly that. But, but in quantum mechanics, you can certainly imagine the two particles are unentangled. That, that's not that hard to do. Because that, that's the, the part, the ob- that observation that you know you look at a spin here and see the opposite spin the yeah. other side of the universe. That to me was the most mind-blowing thing yeah. about quantum Well, you mechanics. and Einstein, so you're in good yeah, company. That right. to me was like, – but, but if I understand everything as, a, as the wave function, it's like, oh. Good. It's all entangled. It's That's all, good. Because space and even time doesn't exist as much as the wave function exists. That's right. You, unlike Einstein, you have uh, read my book. So <laughs> this is uh, – or listened to my I've episode. I've listened to you enough to get Listened to my it. episode to yeah. get that. Yeah. So we, we, we do think that things tend to be entangled, but they don't have to be. And um, that's very important for, for example, a quantum computer. Okay. The whole reason why quantum computers work and can do things faster than classical computers is because we entangle the little electrons and so forth inside. That means we can make a whole bunch of different things that we couldn't make classically, but you had better keep your qubits, as we call them, quantum bits, not entangled with anything else, entangled with each other, but not entangled with the outside world because that would ruin everything. That would ruin the calculation you were trying to do. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't destroy the universe. Not destroy the universe. <laughs> so, so. Just destroy your computer. It would not make it a very good computer. But it, it, so to me, the idea of the, the massive wave function mm-hmm. uh, makes a lot of the mysteries of the universe sort of become less consequential. You know, when does time begin? Mm-hmm. When, you know, what was before the Big Bang? It's all just these emergent properties of the wave. And if we really had all that math worked out, you, you just – that would just be that. This is what we're trying to do. Like Again, in between my lunch with a philosopher and coming over here, I was talking with one of my graduate students. We're writing a paper about how quantum gravity uh, says things about the origin of the universe. You know, Is time eternal? Does it go on forever or did it have a beginning? And these are things we don't know the answer to, but certainly entanglement and quantum mechanics play a big role in whatever the answer is going to be. But I, I would argue the answer is what the answer is, which is probably kind of neither. <laughs> it's like, it's well, like, we don't know it, what it is yet, so I'm not going to say what it, it probably is. Yeah. If it's all a wave function, it doesn't care, does it, about time? The wave function does something or it doesn't. You yes. Know? So It does not and it doesn't. So here's something that uh, is sort of worrying us in the back of our minds relativity as einstein presented Describe to us that. the whole yeah the whole lesson of relativity is that what you and i think of as space and time which are separate right like you tell me where to be and when to be and those are two separate pieces of information einstein says no really it's all part of one unified four dimensional space time and the reason why that's the better way to think about it is that different people moving at different speeds would divide up space time differently into space and time. There's no universally agreed upon way to say all of the things in the universe at one moment in time. That, that's observer dependent. So we, we and, take and, it, he, and he had a, the example of a guy on a train and the yeah. elevator. Those were his thought experiments. Rockets were not as popular back then. So yeah. he had a lot of trains and guns yeah. and elevators and so forth. Um, Essentially, if you jumped up in an elevator, wasn't that his thing? Or if you, if you were walking the opposite direction of the train and you were standing outside the train. Right. That's that's definitely one of the yeah. things that gets you to the idea that motion is relative, yes. right? Like yeah. if you're on the train, you throw a ball up in the air and just goes up straight up and down. Yeah. To someone looking at you do that from outside, it looks like the ball's moving on an arc, yeah. right? On yeah. a parabola. So, yeah, so space and time being part of the same space-time is and one relative. of the major lessons of 20th century physics. Like that was a great triumph. Now, in quantum mechanics, it seems to treat space and time differently. 
once again. So this is part of the difficulty reconciling uh, quantum mechanics with gravity. We can perfectly well reconcile quantum mechanics with special relativity. So there's quantum field theory, particle physics. That all works. But this bigger project of understanding space-time itself in a quantum way is hampered by the fact that quantum mechanics tends not to want to unify space and time. So for example, this is it now back to math. might be this – is, This is math. Yeah, the math well, doesn't there's, work. There's math here. Yeah. Math doesn't work, but we don't even know the words either. You know, if we knew the words and had to find the math, we'd be in much better shape than not knowing is, either is it, one. Isn't vice versa a little even better if you had the math but couldn't describe it? That would also be great. Yeah. But since we have neither one of them, okay, we're neither. stuck. Um, it's very possible that space emerges out of quantum entanglement, but time doesn't. Hang on. Space emerges out of entanglement. Okay. So but what? time is just fundamental. Oh, time that's is like, possible. That's one of the possibilities time is on like the, the table. Time is like the wave function. Well, time is what time is. It's a parameter that tells us all the different Haven't versions I, of the universe that occur over time. I, I always thought more in terms of time. Really, not, not there's biological time, there's clock time, and then there's quantum time. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's also possible that time is also emergent from entanglement in, in a similar I think way. So, so both, it doesn't, well, it doesn't yeah, make you sense. Can think distance, whatever you because <laughs> distance and time, a movement in time, are sort of related. The right? way that we tell that time passes is because things change. Things right? move, yeah. So things move, yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's absolutely relationship between how we measure time and how we see things in space. But you can imagine that time and space are very different at their essences. If this is all – everything is emergent from the wave, yeah. is there eternal recurrence? We don't know. I'm, 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 I feel bad about continually saying we don't know, but that's a possibility. It is a possibility, and isn't it? I, it? I suspect it's not true. If, if there was eternal recurrence, if the universe just repeated itself over and over again, uh, there's, good, there's good arguments that it wouldn't look like it looks to us. Well, it, it feels similar to many worlds to me. It's a it, different version of the multiverse hypothesis. Yeah. Things happening over and over again. Yeah, it's, yeah so it's things a, can happen over and over again in space, in time, or in different branches of the quantum wave function. So, so let's go back to your many worlds because yeah. I know it's your favorite theory. And if you don't mind, take us through the Copenhagen synthesis a little bit. Right. I, I don't want you to have to repeat an entire podcast. They can go to Mindscape to hear it. Yeah. But just so we are all in the same zone here. So it all came about in the early 20th century when we were trying to understand you know, features of particles and, and waves that we didn't understand. And we kept hitting this idea that particles were kind of wave-like in certain circumstances and waves and, were kind of particle-like and, and in I, other I circumstances. Keep, whenever we talk about waves, I keep thinking to myself, our brain does not really grasp waves. I just don't feel we – our brain is We can set write the equations, that. so that's yes, helpful. Yes, we can write the equations. Yeah, yes. that's helpful. And we can kind of know what we're talking about. I just bet we don't. I just bet yeah, we don't. Uh, it could be. Fully that's, anyway, always, that's always a safe assumption. Yeah. Um, so what, what they finally settled on was the following idea, that something like an electron really is a wave and obeying a wave equation, but only when you're not looking at it. Right. And then and we call that the wave function of the electron. But then when you observe it, when you measure it, when you look at it, it looks like a particle. Okay, that's what we settled on in 1926-27, and that sounds absurd. Like, why in the world would something care about whether you were looking at it? And what does it mean to look at it? Does it count if a What's cat's a looking at yeah. it? Yeah, like what if I just glance at it? Cat. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but nevertheless, that became enshrined in, in textbooks as the Copenhagen version of quantum mechanics, the idea that things were wave-like until you looked at them and then they were particle-like. And so that's it. I mean that's the Copenhagen interpretation and you can't even predict exactly what – where the particle will be when you look at it. All you can predict is the probability of seeing it in different places. So plenty of people and Hugh Everett, who was the inventor of the many worlds theory, was among them, um, didn't like this idea. Einstein and Schrodinger, by the way, were also among them. They didn't like this idea either. So, But Niels Bohr wrote the paper defending it. Niels right? Bohr and people like Werner Heisenberg and Wolfgang Pauli who were friends with Bohr, you know, they – Vocally defended this Copenhagen. Is that, is that the paper they put in the wrong order? That's yeah. So there's one fun story where Bohr Bohr was a really strange, interesting character because he was hugely influential. People loved him. People like worshipped Niels Bohr. He had some weird him. charisma. He yeah. had some weird charisma, but he was a terrible writer. <laughs> he He's he was Dutch, not right? very good. Yeah, that's right. Copenhagen. But he write he'd write in um, English badly. Uh, 
Yeah, he would write in English. I think yeah, he would write in English. I mean, yeah. yeah well, uh, this one paper we're talking about, they thought it was a tra- you thought it was a translation. It turned out to be his. That's writing. right. That's right. <laughs> because it was and, so bad. Uh, yeah, he wrote it in English, and and it was reprinted one time with the pages out of order, and nobody noticed. Yeah. Uh, and yet, and yet, this was an incredibly influential paper. Right, this yeah. was a paper about spooky action at a distance. Um, so it, it it speaks to the fact that. There was this weird. If, if I were to pull that decision, paper, yeah. w- would I be able to understand it, or do I have to have the math? I think to, this is one of those papers that it's not clear anyone understands. <laughs> so it's not just you. Because <laughs> okay. I, I thought about, I was thinking, I'd love to read that paper, but I'm not sure. I'd have you the might want to try it. You know, the, the, I think the spirit of the paper is to say that what exists and what is real depends not only on what the measurement outcome is, but the very fact that we choose to measure it in certain ways. That sounds like many worlds again. Sounds it it kind of does that. sound yeah. like that. Yeah. But uh, this is this is part of a debate with Einstein, the famous Bohr-Einstein debates, where Einstein was trying his best to put his finger on something that would everyone would agree counts as real in quantum mechanics. And Bohr would have none of that. He was very slippery. He didn't want to pin down anything that was actually real. Mm. Well, they're friends at Purple, of course. Purple Mattress feels different than anything else you've experienced. If you haven't experienced it, you owe yourself to do it. It uses a brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist, not a memory foam like you might be used to. The material feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time, keeps everything supported while feeling truly comfortable, breathable, so it sleeps cool. And they, of course, have 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10-year warranty, free shipping, free returns. It shows up. You can send it back just as easily. It's easy. And the founders of Purple, they want you to have a good night's sleep. You've got to try Purple mattresses. These two brothers have been developing cushioning technology for 30 years on things like medical beds and wheelchairs and finally decided to use their patented comfort technology to create Purple. You're going to love Purple. And right now, for our listeners, you get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of the mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text DREW, D-R-E-W, to the number 84888. The only way to get that free pillow is to text DREW to 84888. Again, DREW, D-R-E-W, to 84888. Messaging and data rates may apply. If you like my show, you're going to love The Dish with Trish. Join host Trish Paytas as each week she gives you inside access to all the tea. She'll be doing interviews with fun guests, opening up about relationships, drama, rumors, even some exclusives on her life you won't get anywhere else. Nothing off limits when it comes to Trish's world. Don't miss The Dish with Trish every week on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. And where did Schrodinger fit into all this? So Schrodinger, another they like the history here is incredibly colorful and fascinating. You know, Schrodinger um, was kind of unknown before he came up with his equation, and uh, he was 38 years old, which is old for a famous theoretical physicist to make his mark in the field. And uh, so he came up with this equation for wave functions, and he was very hopeful when he came up with the equation, that it would explain why electrons looked particle-like. He hoped that what the equation would say is leave an electron by itself and its wave function would sort of coalesce so here's on, what around it, one point. Here's what it is. Yeah, and it would look like a point. Yeah. And it turns out that's not what his equation predicts. You saw the equation and the wave spreads out all over the universe. Mm-hmm. And so it was another physicist, Max Born – different than Niels Bohr, uh, Max Born said, I know what the wave really means. It's not the essence of the electron. It's the probability that you'll see the electron somewhere. And Schrodinger literally after that said, if I had known that's where it was going, I would never have done this. Really? <laughs> he said he didn't want to have anything to do with see, all this to craziness. Me, I'm super comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, um, Schrodinger and Einstein thought that quantum mechanics was very, very good, but it wasn't finished. Huh. We needed to work harder on completing it. And, and Bohr and Heisenberg and their friends uh, said, no, we're done. We've got to move on to like understanding nuclei and particles and atoms. And Schrodinger, the equation was worked. Why go? Why do anything? The equation else? was is great, but except it works until you look at something. <laughs> and so Schrodinger later just you know switched to biophysics and helped invent DNA. Oh no, kidding! I did yeah. not know that. It is um, oh shoot, I had some other question about Schrodinger's uh, lost. 
Oh, that drives me crazy when my, my block like that. The cat, the equation, you know, certain certain things. <sighs> his daughter did say he, he she thought that his father just didn't like cats. That her father didn't like because cats. That's why he killed the cat in the Schrodinger tell, equation. Tell them that he had that story. So yeah, the Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's cat, cat yeah. is an example where, in fact, Schrodinger was trying to illustrate how bizarre the Copenhagen interpretation is. So you have some quantum system like a decaying particle, and you detect it, and the rules of Copenhagen say that. Until you make the measurement, the particle is truly in a superposition. It's not that it either did decay or it didn't and you don't know. It's in a superposition, a combination of both, decayed and not decayed. So Schrodinger says, you know, put that in a box with a detector and then the detector goes into a superposition of I've detected it and I haven't. And that detector, if it's detected, the decay, it smashes a vial and releases cyanide gas in the box (laughs) And then so the gas is in a superposition of being released in the box and safely in the vial. And there's also a cat in the box. And so the cat, initially doing fine, evolves into a superposition of being alive and being dead, being killed by the gas. And Schrodinger says, you're telling me that as long as I don't look inside the box, the cat is neither alive nor dead. It's both. But then when I open it up and it look, it suddenly changes to be either alive or dead with some probability. Doesn't make Surely sense. Surely you don't believe right. that. Doesn't make sense. Right. And and yet was he satisfied with the probability ideas? No, he didn't he like really that didn't at like all. It. Yeah. And and what did he do with DNA? I never heard this part of the story. So Schrodinger um, had trouble getting a job, even though he was famous and won the Nobel Prize, because he was a bit of a libertine. He had you know his wife and his mistress, and it was hard. Where, uh, where was he? Um, he, I believe he was in Gurdigan uh, okay. to start Gr- or maybe Grunigan. Okay. I don't know. But then he moved to Ireland actually. W- was was the equation derivative of something else? You know, the equation was inspired by just the idea that if you have a wave, you can sort of judge how much energy it has by how fast it's changing. But but it seems like in physics, you know, when things are really considered like evidence of the elegance of the universe is when you can derive one thing from you know Maxwell to E equals M C squared or that, that kind of thing. When you can derive one Except thing from another. That if you're proposing what is truly a fundamental law of nature, it's the thing that other things are derived from, right? Rather okay. than it being derived from something. So right. Schrodinger's equation was inspired by other things, but he was saying this is a new rule. Are other universe. things derived from Schrodinger? Oh yeah, sure. Like absolutely such as all of chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the cloud electron cloud yeah. stuff is all derivative. That's right. So, okay. That's right. But I, I mean, there's no by derivative. I always think in physics in terms of you know a, a pruning down to a more fundamental property. Yeah, but you know, once you have the Schrodinger equation, it's the quantum version of force equals mass times acceleration. Yes, right. It's yes. the thing you derive everything else yes, from. Yes, yes. But anyway, yeah. So Schrodinger got this job in Ireland, and he gave a series of lectures on life. What is life? He wrote a little book, a wonderful little book that is very readable. What, is, what do we mean by the word life? And this was in, you know, I forget the 40s or 50s. And uh, he said, look, we have the theory of evolution. We have genetics. We have heritage. So somehow the information about what makes up us has to be passed down through our genetic material um, to, to influence our children, Right. And he says, that's difficult. That's, that's harder than you think because you know, we're not made of books or, or CDs, right? We're made of all this jingly stuff that is running around and bumping into each other and kind of chaotic. So he says, it can't be a perfect crystal because a perfect crystal has no information. It's just the same damn thing over and over again. It has to be what he called an aperiodic crystal. So it, it needs to be some kind of substance that holds together, keeps its form, but doesn't just repeat. It contains information somehow. Okay. So it has to be some molecule mm. that has a different that has many different possible arrangements, but all of them are somewhat stable, an aperiodic crystal. And Francis Crick read this book and he was a physics person, Francis Crick, originally as a student. And then he said, I got to do biology. We got to look for this crystal. And uh, he – And they were doing um, refraction, right? That was their – Yeah, sure. Right. So he knew, he knew enough um, uh, weird. physics and of course Rosalind Franklin did the actual you know, picture taking uh, and they realized that the what they were seeing was evidence for what Schrodinger had said just on – Basic principles must be there, some information encoding molecule. So I want to take you back to the Copenhagen synthesis and yeah. then, and then uh, Everett. 
So, so get more specific about that because I know it's your favorite thing. Yeah. So the Copenhagen it's, it's the thing you're defending all the time. That's right? right. Yeah. So Copenhagen sort of coalesced in the late 1920s, yeah. especially this famous meeting, the Solvay Conference in 1927, when Einstein basically did sort of everything he could to say like this can't be the right answer. And in the popular imagination, he lost. You know, he didn't give up. He kept fighting after that. But he basically sort of lost the PR battle. That's for sure. And so then physicists forgot about it. They just took this idea that wave functions behave differently whether or not you're looking at them and they took that seriously. But a few people remained annoyed by it and Hugh Everett was a graduate student at Princeton and his advisor was John Wheeler who was an acolyte of Niels Bohr. So this is just part of the fun history of it all. Wheeler worshipped Niels Bohr and thought that the Copenhagen interpretation was right. He asked Everett as a graduate student to think about the quantum theory of the whole universe all at once, what we would now call quantum cosmology. And Everett realized if your quantum system is the whole universe, then this whole bit about an observer being separate from the system being looked at makes no sense. Makes you, no can't, sense. you can't do that. Yeah. You need a theory where the system can sort of observe itself. And that's when he invented the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. He said, look, forget about you – know, part of the Copenhagen ideology is – Maybe an atom is quantum mechanical, but an observer is classical. Okay. Observers just obey the rules of Isaac Newton. And Everett's like, oh, come on. You can't believe that. You're made of atoms and all of your atoms obey the rules of quantum mechanics. Right. You should obey the rules of quantum mechanics. Yeah. So he asked himself, you In know, what, what happens if we just take seriously the rules of quantum mechanics even for observers? And the answer is when you purportedly measure something, it's not that the wave function collapses. It's that the observer becomes entangled with the thing it's looking at. And so entanglement it, again is at a distance – one thing affecting the other essentially. Well, they're related to each related other, to each other. right? They're not really affecting each other, but they're related. So <laughs> if you measure something about one thing, then you can infer something about the other thing. So, so, so Copenhagen let's break says, that down a little more. So you, you, you've measured something about one thing yeah. and that measurement predicts something in, within a probability spectrum about the other thing. That's some right. other thing. Well, it's about the thing it's entangled with. Yes, that's right. So right. Let's, let's do the example of Schrodinger's cat. But, right? but, but aren't every, isn't everything kind of entangled? It's not. That's so the part let, I can't Let's get. do the example. It okay. will help. Really so the Schrodinger's cat in the Copenhagen interpretation, it's in a superposition of alive or dead until you open the box and look inside. Yeah. Then it collapses. It's either alive or dead. Yeah. Everett says what happens when you open the box is you interact with the cat and that's when you become entangled with it. So you weren't entangled with the cat before you opened the box. They were, it was isolated from you. It was inside the box. There was no way to become entangled with it. But when you look at it and you're exchanging photons or whatever – that's when you become entangled. So, the what if I die the moment I p pick the lead off the off the cat? Does it doesn't it matter because it's still entangled. The wonderful okay. thing about Everett is okay. nothing weird about being alive or perception or yeah. consciousness or it's, anything. It's just it could be a rock. It could be a video camera. So the rock could be doing the Absolutely. measuring. Okay. That's right. Um, so what happens is you the system U plus cat started out. Cat was in a superposition of alive or dead and you haven't opened the box yet. And you evolve into a superposition of the cat's alive and you saw the cat alive. Or. Plus. Plus. plus not or. Not or. It's a superposition of both. Plus the cat's dead and you saw it dead. And whatever it then argues is that these two different parts of the wave function of the universe go their separate ways. They don't influence each other anymore. They act as if they're completely separate worlds. And, so and, he never called it the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, but he said that you know the world split into these two different alternatives. And, and then somebody came up with a number of how many splits there are out there, right? Well, we don't know. We know it's an a estimate, lot. An it estimate. could be infinite, yeah. or it could be as small as ten to the ten to the hundred twenty-two. Well, one hundred twenty-two. I was thinking 10, yeah. to ten to twenty-two. It's a big number. I can't imagine where that number came from. Uh, it's a, you know, I can tell you the story. I can tell you where it came from if you want. Is it worth it? Um, yeah, let me just do the short version. You of don't it. do it in your podcast. So it's, this is something you can only get here. Then it, that's right. <laughs> so, I did write a book. Let's keep yes, reminding the people. I wrote a yeah, book. The book is something deeply hidden. Yeah, um, it's all in there. So it, it comes from Stephen Hawking. Oh. Actually, you know, Stephen Hawking taught us in the 1970s that black holes have entropy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that was your whole entropy discussion, by the way, is very interesting. Oh, thank you very much. Because, yeah, that's my favorite. Like I'm saying, thermodynamics thing. or preoccupation yeah. and to understand where that comes from. That's right. Helps understand it, frankly. Right. Because this idea of you know suddenly the molecules all go into the corner. It's like mm, doesn't yeah. help me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out that entropy is related to quantum mechanics. Yes, that I got if you that. know the entropy of something, you know how many different quantum states it can possibly have. The more states it's spread out over, the higher its entropy is. Makes so perfect sense. Hawking says that that's true for black holes, that in fact black holes not only have an entropy but a really big entropy. The, 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 we have a big black hole at the center of our galaxy, Sagittarius A star. It's you know, several million times the mass of the sun. Um, and its entropy is as big as the entropy of all the particles in the observable universe. <laughs> I think you said if we, if we were to go into a black hole, we sort of wouldn't know it? Yeah, that's right. If the black hole is big enough, it's very gentle. There's no signpost when you hit the event horizon. You pass right through. But, Eventually, you'd know it because you would die. <laughs> we'd go to two dimensions though, right, or something? No, no. no? That's a little bit tricky. Let me okay. finish the entropy okay, story. Go, okay, go um, it turns out that this story about entropy of black holes and the number of quantum states that it could possibly have works for the universe as a whole. Say, it, say that again. So this story about black holes, yeah. that they have an entropy and you can use that to say how many quantum states – are included in the black hole, also works for the universe as a whole, or okay. at least for, I should say, the observable universe. It's very much like we're inside a horizon. You know, the, the black hole, the edge of the black hole is called the event horizon. Have you ever read uh, Heidegger, philosopher? Yeah, a little bit. He uses remarkably similar language to quantum physics. Remarkable. In Being in Time or? Uh, the second book of Being in Time, okay. where, where he's talking about horizons and ecstasies mm. and he, he just has this sense about – I thought he was going sort of eastern and sort of you know holistic. But when you really – he had a very quantum physics kind of properties to it. The well, way he, he was put, writing in Germany in the early part of the 20th century. I, I, so. I wonder <laughs> if he was influenced by it all. He didn't seem yeah, like that maybe, but, uh, but had that kind of quality. Anyway, so go ahead. I don't so. know. We're in the black so, hole, the giant black hole. So, well – we're it's not we're not in a black hole, but it's like that, and so that we're now avoiding the math. But there is a horizon. So there's a horizon around a black hole in the sense that if something goes in, it can't come back out, right? Can't come back out. It cannot come back out. That's what a black hole is. There's also a horizon around us in the universe because if something goes very very far away, space expands so fast. We live in an expanding universe that that thing can never come back. So there's a horizon around us, a point of no return. So like, it's like there's a horizons of spreading and there's a horizon of concentrating. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. And um, our horizon has an entropy and you can calculate it and it's something like 10 to the 122. And so that implies a certain number of quantum states that our universe can have ah. and that gives the lower limit – on how many possible worlds there could be. The upper limit is infinity. So that's the range. The you know it's it's ten to the ten to the hundred and twenty two between that number and infinity. So it's a one with ten to the hundred and twenty two zeros. Zeros, yeah, it. ten to the hundred and twenty two zeros. I was trying to figure out how many zeros that was. That's right. I mean just for just for uh scale, the number of particles in the observable universe is ten to the eighty eight. Oh, is that true? Yeah, so it doesn't sound so big once you use numbers like wait, 10 to the number 10. Of part, wait, say that. Number, number of, part, of particles. In the universe. In the observable universe. Obs particles. Photons, electrons, quarks, neutrinos. That seems like bit. an awfully small number for that. See? <laughs> that, that, it's interesting. Well, the, see, now the uh, many worlds seems closer to one again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, universe, the universe is only about, I think, 10 to the 18 seconds old. So um, – 10 to the 18 in ordinary terms is a big number, yeah. but in these terms, it's nothing. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and, is, and if you – So this is why, by the way, even though the universe is branching into multiple worlds all the time, there's plenty of room for all these branches of the wave function. If there can be 10 to the 10 to the 122 of them, we're not going to run out of worlds anytime soon. That's interesting. How is, how is this um, – because I'm, I'm a dilettante when it comes to your field – how is this all going these days, the conversation about this? Is I think there's a – people are getting anxious, anxious about it or anxious to well, get into a, it again? I think or? there's a lot of things going on. I think that you know, um, people like me are trying to get our physics colleagues mm -hmm. interested in the foundations of quantum mechanics once again. And I'm certainly not the only one or the most important one. Uh, and maybe it's working. I think you know, maybe people are catching on that we do have to pay attention to this stuff. 
The other side of the coin is when we try to understand space-time and quantum gravity and so forth, it's becoming more clear that this perspective on foundations, namely many worlds, is very useful. That you know, just like Hugh Everett predicted in the 1950s, understanding the universe as a whole requires us to look beyond the Copenhagen interpretation. And to be fair, many things in physics as the theories have evolved required people accepting weird – things that seemed and sounded weird – until they had a deeper explanation or yeah. mathematical way of describing it or something. Absolutely. You, you know, just got to go – that's just what the equation says for now. That's right. <laughs> Taking well, and, it at and, face value. And your intuition and your feeling for what's natural changes over time as you learn more and more. So yeah. something that might have been just absolutely abhorrent to you at one point, yeah, like later on you realize, oh, yeah, come on. That's obviously right. Well, but but not only that, you, you, it's because you incorporate more and more ideas into your yeah. – like for instance, entanglement to me was the most like forget it. That's not – can't be. Yeah. And then, then if it's, oh, we're all just uh, emergent properties of a giant wave function. Oh, done. Got it. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yes, that's right. So, well, listen, I, I, I really appreciate you coming here and sharing this kind of stuff with us. I hope my audience gets into this. I am, I, I'm fascinated. I, I think you do the, a better job than anybody of making this accessible to the, to the world. And I feel like that's your commitment. All right. Do you want you want it is, and also you know, in the podcast, just so people aren't shocked when they see the episodes, it's mostly not about physics. You know, I I love talking with wine. smart people yeah. about all sorts of yes. things. Yes. You know, music, movies, wine, but also there's a lot of philosophy, neuroscience, biology. Yes. Um, I have some fun episodes coming up: origin of life, um, entropy, things like that, the multiverse. So. Yes, but but you bring this to that. You know. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, so, it's, it's me doing the interviewing. All yeah, the time. And, right. And so, which I'm. Again, I find a, a unique and fascinating kind of way of, uh, of approaching these things. And uh, I cannot recommend it uh, strongly enough. Mindscape is, again, the name of the podcast. Before we kind of wrap things up, I, I want to get back to the other thing that kind of stuck with me and I'm trying to like get my head squared is the idea of – your because I have such deep respect for you, your disdain for the dark web. And oh, you, the intellectual and, dark web. The intellectual yeah. dark web. And okay. you, you wanted people brought into the, the conversation there. And, I, and I, I'd like to know more about that and what, what – because I always thought of the dark web as a place where people can say anything. And you said, no, they're leaving, they're leaving points of view out. And I thought, oh, that's not good. I'd like it well, to Well, I think that – yeah. I mean my, my main criticism is not that they are leaving – points of view out, although I think that that's true. I think that you know there is a certain particular slant they have about what they consider worth complaining about, right? You know, there's certain kinds of um, attitudes that they it's, – it's not just they want anything said. They want certain things being able to be talked well, about. Well, the, the things that they have felt they couldn't talk about for the yeah. most part. So, right? I mean – yeah, that's right. So the things that they wanted to talk about, yeah, right? That they that's felt right. Yeah. punished for, thought judged or something, and, and they, those things they, sort of systematically have the flavor of, you know, um, people like me are getting a bum, bum rap. <laughs> well, it, it, it's usually stuff that has. It's usually science that has been used to do social harm. It, it's legitimately been used to harm people. And as a result, it's highly charged <clears throat> when people want to talk about these things because they can still do harm with it. It's still – if people take these things and use it as a mallet, it, it, isn't, it shouldn't be you – know, we're saying don't discuss that. And <clears throat> Some of the dark web people are saying, no, no, it's just science. We've got to dispassionately talk about stuff no matter what it is. And so that's sort of always my view is just like I just want to know what the science says. We don't have to – again, just having this conversation I think is important because you realize how – Difficult reality is to come to figure out. I mean, no, you know, we got to really be objective and careful and thoughtful and constantly change your point of view and constantly take new ideas, whatever they might be. Right? No, that's right. Yeah. So I'm completely in favor of talking about all sorts of yeah, things. Yeah. So that's where I say, you know, in my uh, episode of the podcast about this, that's where I agree. I'm all in yeah. favor of talking about things. So here's so a, who here's do we a, need to bring in? Was my question. So here's a, here's people. a critique that you might imagine people in the intellectual dark web would offer. Um, we live in a society where what can be said and cannot be said are governed by power structures that are influenced by history and by money and by hierarchy and by uh, breeding and race and things like that. And so there are all of these voices that are not heard because they are of minority groups or people who didn't have money or power or anything like that. Right. We need to hear from them. Yeah, but I don't actually hear that critique from the intellectual dark web. I don't hear them trying to right, raise the it, voices it, of queer, gay, right, uh, black it, people because they don't usually I, get heard. That's not the shtick. That's not the priority. I would say it's, yes. it's mostly an ad hominem <laughs> thing about me. 
yeah. and what I was not able to say. That's right. And that we should be able to talk about. Yeah. But, and so, so as in, if you're going to use the word intellectual in your self-description, my, my point in my podcast bring was everybody in. that's an incredibly high bar. Like, do it by all means. Good for you for yeah. aiming for that. But what that means is the first person you better be skeptical of is yourself. Right. The person you have to be harshest on. Agreed. The person after you better check that you're not being biased is yourself. Yes. I, I think that they could do a better job. And are you going to bring some of these people onto your podcast? Um, yeah, I have no specific plans. I, I, don't mean the I, I never know who's I mean more in the, and not. No, I mean more the people that have not been heard from. Oh yeah, you know, you know, I hope so. Like Alice Drager, who uh, was one of my first podcast guests, was meant to be in that first New York Times article about the intellectual dark web until she said, "Like, I don't even know these people. Don't include me." With uh, that's really funny. <laughs> okay, well, I can go listen to that. Yeah. Anybody else we should be looking for to, to bring into the conversation? I try to keep it sacred. Secret. Who's going to be? Uh, no, no. On I my mean, podcast? who do you recommend for the to bring into the conversation that aren't being oh. heard? Yeah. No. Um, uh, that's a great question. You know, like uh, the whole set of conversations about, let's say, intersectionality. Okay, because right? Gary, I'm going to be bugging you to get <laughs> to get these people. Yeah. So. No. So the idea of intersectionality um, uh, in originated with Kimberly Crenshaw, who yeah. is a um, law professor at UCLA. But, but she had a really narrow idea about it. That my understanding is. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. you know, look. That's, this is this is a wonderful rhetorical trick that I'm not accusing you of, but people mm. get accused of. Um, you can always find bad examples of anything, right? Like yeah. any idea can be misused. Yes. So I'm, let's put aside the worst uses of idea, like identity politics, intersectionality, like all this stuff can be used badly. So I agree with that. But that doesn't mean that it, it's not also used well. Mm. So this idea that there are ways of being discriminated against that don't apply to African-Americans don't apply to women but do apply to African-American women. Mm -hmm. That's what intersectionality is all about. Um, so I think that's just a fascinating idea. Uh, I'm sure that there are limits to it and I would love to explore those limits. Um, so that's the kind of idea that I think that should be elevated because it is actually – you know, when you say it that way – it's very sciencey, right? It's about the nonlinear interactions between different kinds of systematic bias and discrimination in the world. Yeah, uh, it's and, not fuzzy and and you know um, um, personal. It's it's just an objective fact about yeah. how people behave with each other. And the other thing is the bias um, exists. We all have bias. And bias we exists. And we have yeah, cognitive so that's, distortion. So a whole other thing, right? A whole other yeah. thing is um, the very first episode of my podcast is with a social psychologist, Carol Tavris, who works on how we convince ourselves that we're right no matter what decisions we make. So she is really wonderful about uh, you know, cognitive dissonance and justifying ourselves after the fact. It's weird to me how we are so overcome by that phenomenon today. Yeah. In my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this. Well, and there's also – yeah, there's current political issues. Which no, is I understand that it's all amplified thing, but, by everything. Uh, I, I get it, but – it's uncanny. <laughs> it's yeah, un it's uncanny. And, it's, and, and it goes do, on both sides. It goes – it doesn't – you know, it's just both sides have these I, And I do think that – I suspect that the, the general impression we have that this kind of sort of tribalism and irrationality is worse now than it used to be, it's always very difficult for me to know because we have our bias of being recent, right? Like yeah. we think what – the time we're in now is always special. That's yeah. a very obvious bias that we yeah. all have. Still, I think it's true. I think I think that we are. Seems like, uh, and and part of it, a big part of it, is the internet. I did a really fascinating interview uh, on Mindscape with Will Wilkinson. I don't know if you listened to that one, but he's a you know sort of a political uh, policy analyst who who analyzed the urban rural divide mm. and how that cross cuts with things like personality types. I like did can, listen to this. You I can did show that certain it. personality types yeah. want to be in cities and and yeah. certain want to be in the country, and how does that affect our Politics and, and he you know, did a historical view overview of it too. He did a historical yeah. view and yeah. you know the psychological view and everything. Yeah. And it's all you know anything social scientific like that is way messier and and uh, should be critiqued by others. So I'm, I'm looking for other people to bring in different views on that. But um, yeah, th this issue of how we're rational, uh, how we're irrational, what our biases are. Like, look, if you look 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, these people weren't idiots. But they say things and they justify things that now we find horrible, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So clearly we're doing things that oh, 100 course. years from now yeah, they will find horrible. Yes, I'm sure of that. How do we figure out what those are? I would really like to know. Well, not only that, how do you – within the context of then and now, what's real? 
Well, yeah, we're, that's we're, right. What's, you know, what's, uh, what is truth? Like uh, and, David Hume is one of my favorite philosophers, but uh, some, like many people, uh, some really terrible views on race. And some people say, well, of course, you know, he was talking in the 1700s. Of course, he had terrible views on race. But you can actually go back, even in the 1700s, among his circle of friends, people were like, David, that's really racist. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, how much latitude do you give to people? It's a tricky question. It's hard. Well. I think if we focus too much on the ad hominem conversations about historical figures, we're going to lose a lot of thought. Yeah, it's very easy to, to just us. hold it up as a slogan or a rallying yeah. cry. It's very hard to be rational about those things. I agree. And so yeah. look, look, that's where, again, I'm totally sympathetic to the intellectual dark web about the need to be able to have rational conversations about all sorts of touchy topics. But the other thing that's kind of disturbing to me is, uh, you know, we're having a freewheeling, you know, theoretical conversation, but and we really haven't done anything scientific in this conversation, yeah. really. Um, how poorly and how few people are trained to have that kind of objective thought process. Yeah. And, and even among scientists and clinicians and things, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. If you ask them what's the basic principle of scientific method, they wouldn't right. be able to tell you, let alone how to really carefully, objectively analyze what you're thinking through. It's rare. You know, I say – I tell people you would think that being a professional cosmologist studying the universe would make you humble because the universe is really big and you're really tiny. Empirically, that's just not true. <laughs> There's just as many self-important jerks among the cosmologists and sweet, very nice people. I, I'll, I'll very quickly say the recent Nobel Prize that was just given this year, one of them was given to Jim Peebles. Who is the it was the first Nobel Prize given for theoretical cosmology. And happily, Jim Peebles is one of the nicest people in the world. That's so good. that was a really nice thing to see. And I got to uh, speak briefly to um, – shoot, I'm, I'm breaking out his name. He's a famous uh, – Gary, help me um, – who called in once on A&D, the cosmologist that's – does all the TV and stuff. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. And, and yeah. we were talking about CO2 scrubbing technologies and he gave, oh, me, okay. he gave me hope that we would have that. All right. And so that was, that was <laughs> nice. But, but still, the ability to think carefully and objectively is something I, I, I'm wondering if our educational system has sort of gotten so focused on the facts and accumulating information that the ability to think carefully is lost. Yeah, and I think it's a multifaceted um, ability because part of it is just quantitative, right? Like having probabilities mm. attached to things and updating them. But a lot of it is sort of psychological, you know, knowing when you're putting your thumb on the scales a little bit. But you may have always – some people always have that kind of objective mechanism in their brain. Uh, you may have always been that kind of person. No, it's just not true. I, I – Because uh, I know I had, to, I, had to, I had to grind myself into it until it became autonomous, until it started working. I'm a poker player and I know perfectly well that I am just as uh, subject to wishful thinking as anyone else. Right, but I'm imagining – I know what the numbers are. I, I, I understand and that's – that's the human brain. Yeah. That's how it that is. works. Right. Exactly. But I'm still imagining your ability to be objective and careful. Trust me, it's different than the average person's. And I'm wondering if it was already because some people's minds just work that way. Yeah, but but, but you can train a, brains to do that. You, I, I, I had to be trained. Train. You can train. Yeah. So I, I know what my mind was like before I did that, and I know what it's like after right. I was well trained. And it was like mm, that's mm. different, and I feel very fortunate. <laughs> but I'm looking around, going, I'm seeing lots of my pre-morbid self. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah so it's still out there. That's so, right. But and that's either good nor bad. I, I wouldn't judge anybody on that. It's just, you know, we have but to... Yeah, but my point is that the idea of being rational, looking at the world rationally, is a very multifaceted idea. Yes. You know, the, the, that ability to judge evidence objectively is part of it. Yeah. The, the thing that I think is the crucial part that is the least emphasized is what I think of as the attention filter. Like there's a billion things going on in the world at any one time. You can't pay attention to everything and there's a huge bias just given to us by the fact that we tend to focus on some things and not others. It's inevitable. You can't help it. You can't literally pay attention to everything. So you need a filter but choosing where your filter is has an enormously powerful impact on how you view the world and what you think is you know, the important issues and what you can ignore. And, and I haven't seen a lot of work on training uh, that filter. That's interesting. I will give that some thought because yeah. that, that could be affecting – a lot of what's going on right now. I think so. That yeah. the current political thing caused a certain kind of attentional mechanism to emerge that's not serving us that great. Yeah, we all know about you know the filter bubble on the yeah. internet and so forth. Yeah. And I think they did a little sub-feature of that is 
if you just go on social media or whatever, not only is there polarization, but social media sort of trains us to be snarky. Right, like yeah. if we disagree with someone, we don't engage in some careful critique. We no. just say like, ah, yeah, yeah, and that feeds on itself, and it becomes the norm, and it just becomes impossible to think of people who disagree with you as human. Look, I, I just today released a podcast uh, where I was interviewing a professional philosopher who's a panpsychist. So he thinks about consciousness and he thinks that everything is a little bit conscious. Right. right? Electrons not, have consciousness. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, I am not a panpsychist by any measure. Me neither. And so we had a very productive, fruitful discussion yeah. where I told him why I didn't believe him. He told me why I didn't believe me. It became clear from the comments uh, that there were people who believe me and people who believe him and mm. very few people who were interested in the debate back and forth. Like they had chosen the side and they were like, why did you talk to this complete nonsense person? Uh -huh. Or why did you not understand that this person was telling you the truth? And it's just – like people talk – people say they want to hear an honest debate between two sides. It's rare that they really do. Did you have a real talk about consciousness and the hard oh, problem? Oh, yeah, absolutely right. I, I really believe that – just let me just throw this out yeah. there – that, that Trying to understand consciousness as a single skull phenomenon, wrong. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a, at least two skull phenomenon. Well, and, and your and you body look, counts too. Uh, it's an embedded experience, absolutely. But th this mm -hmm. is my body. Our bodies are in space together, right. and yep. they're relating to each other in ways that our brain can only partially consciously inform us about. Uh, and you know, where does the self emerge in yep. an interpersonal context? Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I always do the thought experiment: if you had a feral child leave at age one, come back at age fourteen. Not going to be conscious in the way that we think of consciousness, not not functioning on itself. And and look at social mammals as they become more and more social. You see more and more self recognition, mm -hmm. things like we would consider sort of conscious. We feel like it's conscious. Only social mammals. Well, the, Only role, social the mammals. role of language is very yeah. interesting yeah. in consciousness. Um, I don't claim to understand but again, it, but I can. But that's can, an exchange phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't invent language if yeah. you were the only person in the world. All right, I've, I've exhausted things. I've, I've worked you over good. <laughs> I appreciate you being. I, I told you I'd bring you back, and, My I, pleasure. and I really, really, truly appreciate. it. If there's anything I can do to, do you let me know? Support your podcast or this is great. No, just having me on, being able to talk, it's a very and, helpful. Uh, yeah. I ins please everybody. Uh, help help Sean out help me out <laughs> by making good on going to see Mindscape you won't be sorry to check, download it and uh, check it out thanks a lot thanks right, for having me see you next time for calling times and topics follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast that's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast the music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast now available on iTunes and while you're there don't forget to rate the show the Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or Dr. Dr. Drew.com.